thought a hush was falling over the crowd for a minute there. Welcome back this morning. For those of you who may be wondering, there are no handouts this morning. You are victims once again of my inconsistency. I apologize for that, but uh, I don't think they are beneficial every week um, for me to, to do that. I will open us in prayer this morning, and we will continue on and finish up Deuteronomy chapter 9 and move on into chapter 10. So if you would pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we come before you again uh, pleading for your mercy and your grace that you would give us ears to hear and that you would give us eyes to behold wonderful things that are in your law. We come here looking for your blessing and we know that you have taught us to gather with the expectation that your spirit will stir us and make your word uh, good for us. And so we pray that you would do that very thing, that we would be those who are filled with the knowledge of Christ and that we would live from that heart. And so we pray that you would use this hour to build our faith and to deepen our obedience and make it more heartfelt and more consistent. We ask for these blessings to be given in Jesus' name. Amen. So Deuteronomy chapter 9. We will begin in verse 25, and we will uh, spend pretty much no time in review this week. Uh, that will kind of be built in uh, as we go along. So starting uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 25, up until this point, Moses has focused on Israel's rebellion, which is a result of her perverted nature, um, the thesis, uh, again, is verse 6. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. In fact, in verse 22, before we get to 25, this kind of leads up into it, Moses mentions uh, at Tibera also, and at Massah, and at Kibroth Hetaava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. That was the third time... Moses said that Israel had provoked the Lord. In fact, it could even be translated, your provocateurs of Yahweh. Uh, this was your nature. You were consistently doing this sort of thing. Uh, so even though Israel was provoking God repeatedly, God had listened to Moses. He mentions that in verse 19. And what Moses has done up to this point is he has simply implied the difference between Israel's nature as a rebellious people and provocateurs versus the Lord who has been merciful and gracious in listening to Moses. But what's happening now is in verse 25, Moses is beginning to switch gears a little bit. For uh, verse 25 to verse 29, end of chapter 9, Moses will focus on his successful intercession with the Lord uh, the sort of prayer that the Lord received as a valid argument uh, for why he should be merciful to this people. And then in chapter 10, Moses is going to switch gears one more time and look at the Lord's nature more directly and how he had uh, mercy on a people who did not deserve it. So verses 25 to 29, I will read that, and then we'll come back and make just a few comments about it. So I lay prostrate before the Lord these forty days and forty nights, because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people, your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. In verse 18, Moses had already mentioned the fact that he went up for 40 days and 40 nights and prayed to the Lord. He says, Then I lay prostrate before the Lord. Begins the same way as verse 25. Forty days and forty nights I neither ate bread nor drank water because of the sin 
that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Their sin was the occasion that led to Moses' prayer, but verse 25 adds another dimension to that. I lay prostrate before the Lord these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord said he would destroy you. So he prays on account of their sin. That was the occasion, but the reason that Moses prayed is because there is a lethal threat laid against the people of Israel on account of their sin. And so Moses comes and he prays. Now all sin provokes God, and whether or not we repent, God must have mercy or we die. At this point in Deuteronomy, the people, Moses already come down, he executed judgment by all appearances, what we would remember from Exodus. The people had sort of repented by this time. The Levites had gone through. They thrust uh, all of their brothers through and killed them who engaged in the idolatry. And the way Moses presents it in Deuteronomy is that doesn't work. There is, repentance is not an act that merits forgiveness. He had to plead mercy, and the Lord had to be merciful in order for them to survive. So even though repentance is there, that doesn't earn them anything, nor does it earn us anything. Rather, that repentance is merely a condition that is met. It is not the same as uh, being rewarded uh, forgiveness. So repentance earns nothing. The threat of destruction still lays over the people. Moses must come in and pray on their behalf. So he prayed because the Lord said he would destroy you. Now this prayer, starting in verse 26, has what we could call three commands of Moses to the Lord. Uh, They're not commands. We don't command God, obviously. But that is the the grammatical... um, language behind it, as they would be imperatives. Number one, in verse 26, that the Lord would not treat his people as they deserve. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage. This word in verse 12 is actually a different word than what was used, I'm sorry, the word here in verse 26 is a different word for destroy what Moses had used in verse 25. In verse 25, the Lord said that he would destroy the people. Looking for Numbers 25. Yeah, because he said he would destroy you. That word we could translate exterminate. Um, This word we could translate as spoil. We already saw it up in verse 12. So if you'll look back with me up into Deuteronomy 9, verse 12... The Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought up from Egypt have acted corruptly. That word is actually spoiled. Uh, They have spoiled themselves, we might say. And Moses here in verse 26 says, O Lord, do not spoil your people and your heritage. And what he's doing is he's making a play on words. By using the same word as what was used up in verse 12, Moses is acknowledging the rightness of, of the Lord to do exactly that, to destroy his people. That would be just. They spoiled themselves. It's only appropriate for the Lord to give them uh, their due merits. But Moses here says, don't do that. This is what they deserve. I acknowledge this is what they deserve. We both know this is what they deserve. Please don't do that. And he pleads for the Lord to change a different tone. So do not destroy or spoil your people and your heritage whom you have redeemed through your greatness whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. In other words, O Lord, why would you ruin the work that you have begun? You've already done something magnificent for this people repeatedly in the past. This people is your workmanship. Why would you destroy what you have created? That is a pretty sound biblical argument. And not only that, Moses, basically by describing this people these two ways, 
whom you have redeemed and whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand, he's basically saying, yes, in verse 12, you told me that this people was my responsibility, but the responsibility I have with them is nothing compared to the responsibility you have. So if I, O Lord, have a responsibility to intercede on their behalf, how much more of a responsibility do you have to see your work through to the end? That, again, a very sound biblical argument. In verse 27 is the second command, Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One of the great ironies of this is that the Lord, uh, that Moses had already told the people that they were to remember something as well. Uh, that is actually up in verse 7. Moses tells the people, Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath. And the rest of this in chapter 9 has been recalling to their mind. Right? It's been making them remember the way they have rebelled against the Lord. And he dwells on it for a long time. So while the people are to remember how they acted corruptly, the Lord is supposed to remember an oath he swore to the ancestors, that to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so he asks the Lord, would you remember your prior commitments just as you are now having me teach these people that they are to remember their wickedness? So there's a a mirror image there. The third one comes in verse 20, uh, the end of verse 27, the last half of it there. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin. So he simply asks the Lord to overlook uh, who the people are and what they have been. The first word here, stubbornness, is the same word used in verse 6. They are a stubborn people. Uh, Moses accuses the people. Same thing that the Lord calls the people later on. And in verse 21, uh, Moses mentions it again, uh, that the people are stubborn. I'm sorry, that's sin, uh, verse 21. So in verse 6, they're stubborn. The Lord calls them stubborn later on. And Moses here is pleading with the Lord, do not remember their stubbornness. Do not remember their wickedness or their sin. Their sin is what they did in making the golden calf. Don't remember that. And in the middle, between sin and wicked, uh, between sin and stubbornness is wickedness. That is a term that shows the perversions of the people that uh, is inherent, and it gives rise to their actions. And so it's appropriate that that would be in the middle. Now what we should notice here is Moses does not whitewash who the people are nor what they've done. He doesn't try to put a better face on it. He simply lays it bare. This is a good and honest and right confession for Moses to make. And we could go over here to James chapter 4. told you last week we would spend a little bit of time on prayer. And the themes between Deuteronomy 9 and James 4 are quite striking. We'll start in verse 2. So James chapter 4, verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose... It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, 
and he will exalt you. Moses spends a chapter telling the people of Israel how proud and how sinful and how double-minded they have been. So much so that it requires someone to intercede on their behalf. But notice what happens in the midst of that. He leads the people into a recognition of their sin so that they might actually be humble. And when they are humble, the Lord is inclined to listen. That's one of the great things about Moses, right? He was more meek than anyone else on the face of the earth. And the Lord listened to him. That's the power of humility. And so one thing we ought to recall when we pray is our need for humility and our need for confession. We have to recognize our sinfulness if we are to expect anything from the Lord. And Moses tries teaching his people, call your sin what it is and recognize yourselves for who you are. And if you do that, the Lord responds quite amazingly. Now Moses did do it on behalf of the people at this time, but Moses bases his argument after he confesses who the people of Israel are and reminding the Lord what he's done for them, he moves on a little bit further and bases the whole prayer in the argument of God's own reputation. Verse 28. So verse 27, uh, remember your servants, do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin. And why shouldn't the Lord do that? Why should the Lord overlook those things? Verse 28, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. I don't think it's without any irony that those are the two things that the people accused the Lord of himself. The Israelites would repeatedly accuse the Lord of, is he among us or isn't he? Can he do this or can't he do do it? And at one point, uh, they accused the Lord of hating them, which is why he brought them to Kadesh Barnea uh, to face the Anakites, because he hated them. So Moses here says that that is the sort of language an Egyptian would use, or perhaps even a Canaanite, but he he focuses here on the Egyptians. But then he ends where he began in verse 29, For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. So he begins with the identity of the people, those whom the Lord has redeemed, and he ends with that. And there are two points here that I think are illustrated well. First, in prayer, Moses does to God what God did to Moses. Moses gives as good as he gets, which is, at the burning bush, the Lord refused to take no from Moses. And here, Moses refuses to take a no from the Lord. It's, um, another image would be Jacob wrestling with the Lord. I will not release you until you bless me. Moses goes and goes and goes at the Lord and uh, does everything he can. He pleads with the people in order, or pleads with the Lord in order that he would have mercy on the people. We already saw it in James. Uh, there's a couple more passages we could look at to illustrate this point or to draw it out a little bit. Later on in James chapter 4, verses 23 to 26, there is no 4, 23, 26. Well, that's terrifically awkward. But we can still go to James 5.16. I think that actually exists. James 5.16 Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. I think what I meant to do was not have the twos before the four, three, and six. So if we go back to four, three, and six. Um, at least uh, verses two and three, maybe. 
You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I think it is worth paying attention to the fact that praying for ourselves doesn't always have the effect that we would hope it would. Moses pleaded with the Lord repeatedly, let me see the land, let me see the land, let me see the land. And the Lord said, no, 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 and shut up about it. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 4. That's what I want. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23 to 26. That's where the Lord tells Moses, knock it off. I'll start in verse 22. For I must die in this land. So this is Deuteronomy 4.22. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and possess the land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Man, that's not right either. Well, the embarrassment has no end this morning. <laughs> Chapter 3. I think we'll get it third time's the charm, they say, right? Chapter 23, verse 26. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you, do not speak to me of this matter again. Now, that is the Lord, uh, Moses pleading to go in to see the land. And the Lord says, No. So all all of this uh, debacle here to illustrate one thing. Praying for ourselves may not always have the effect we would hope it would. James exhorts us, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. Moses illustrates that by praying on behalf of the people. That is important. And one of our greatest privileges is to pray for another person's reconciliation. Paul draws that out as well. Go to your brother. Try and draw him back, because one who wins souls is wise. So one of our great privileges is to pray for another's reconciliation. The second thing worth saying is it illustrates the possibility of prayers. Be persistent. Moses was tremendously persistent. In fact, the way he writes the book of Deuteronomy, it appears as though he spent 40 days in intercession. Now, the Lord, Mo, the Lord was moved by Moses three times. First, the Lord said he was going to destroy the people. Moses talked him out of it. So he doesn't destroy the people. But then he says, okay, I won't destroy them, but I'm going to leave them. Moses says, please don't do that. Renew the covenant. So the Lord says, okay, I'll renew the covenant, but I'm not going with you. No, if you're not going with us, we're not leaving. We're staying here until you come. The Lord says, okay, I'll come. That persistency in prayer is remarkable in the effect it had. Israel's history would have been nothing like what it was had Moses not been persistent in prayer. And it really did change the outcome. Any thoughts or questions, as long as it's not a scripture reference? Yes. And they are answered because they're according to God's will and we know that. Yeah, so, so Barb points out that Paul does say um, he has magnificent prayers that are on behalf of other people, but also on behalf of ourselves, and that's true. Um, I hope you don't hear me saying we shouldn't pray for ourselves, uh, but what I am trying to draw out is the um, added benefit that us rugged American individuals uh, often have have as a tendency, which is, no, I'm going to keep my sin hidden. I don't want anyone praying for me over it because then they have to know what's going on. Um, so I'm, I'm uh, emphasizing the other end of it that Moses illustrates here in Deuteronomy, praying for one another. Good point, though, Barb. Thank you. 
<laughs> yeah, I have nothing in... Uh, so the, the comment uh, was in regards to parents praying for children. Um, I have nothing magical about the 40 days. In fact, uh, in... We'll, we'll come to it a little bit later on, so maybe I'll just mention it now. The, the, Moses spent two sections of 40 days on the mountain. And at least the way Exodus presents it, what he's primarily doing on the mountain during those 40 days is receiving the tablets from the Lord. And so he goes up the first time, he receives the, the tablets, and um, he apparently receives instructions for how to build the tabernacle, gets sent back down, spends some time interceding with the Lord in the tent of meeting, which is not the tabernacle, hasn't been built yet, um, spends time interceding with the Lord, and when the Lord says, okay, I'll renew the covenant, cut new tablets, and come back up the mountain. And he's up there another 40 days and 40 nights. And whether you're in Exodus or whether you're in Deuteronomy, it's very difficult to tell how much interceding Moses did that second 40 days. I think he certainly had to have done some. But by the time he goes back up, the Lord has called him up with the purpose of renewing the covenant. And so a lot of his primary intercession wasn't in the span of the 40 days that he was on the mountain. But the way he, he writes Deuteronomy, he fudges the chronology to make a theological point uh, and a very important one. And so um, I don't think there's anything magical about the 40. I think it has a lot more to do with the time Moses spent in receiving the instruction than it did necessarily in relation to his prayer. Um, so, again, I don't think there's anything magical about the time, but the fact of persistent uh, prayer uh, is, is very uh, appropriate for parents. Thanks, Janet. Anything else? Okay. We can move on to chapter 10. Moses now shifts focus and pays uh, tribute, puts the spotlight on the Lord's reaction to Israel's sin and the result of Moses' intercession. At that time... That that time is just simply a very, very broad catch-all phrase. It's like saying, in those days. And what Moses means by, and at that time, Moses simply means sometime after Israel's sin and sometime before I went back up on the mountain. Sometime around there. And in fact, we'll see that same phrase occur again a little bit later on. And it refers to an even broader period of time. So, uh, we're not fishing for chronology here again. Uh, We're just simply looking at that time period. At that time, the Lord said to me, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain, and make an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark." So verses 1 and 2 here are simply the Lord's instructions to Moses. Cut new tablets, make an ark of wood, come up to me, I will write on those tablets, and you shall put the tablets in the ark. It is unclear whether this is the ark of the covenant that was made by Bazalel, or whether this is a different wooden chest. Most likely it is a different wooden chest that Moses builds specifically as a temporary housing point for these two tablets. Uh, They will go in the Ark of the Covenant later on, but it appears as though this was probably a different box altogether. So, um, verse 3, having received the instructions, now we see those instructions being fulfilled. So I made an Ark of Acacia wood and cut two tablets of stone like the first, And went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before, the Ten Commandments that he wrote on the tablets, that that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made, and there they are as the Lord had commanded me. Quite simple, renewal uh, story here, we might say. I do want to point out just a couple of things very briefly. In verse 2, 
And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke. Now, that is not a derogatory statement. All that is is a statement of uh, recalling the fact that this covenant was truly terminated. It was annulled. Moses uh, illustrated that when he broke those tablets. And what the Lord is doing here is he's saying, okay, I am re-entering that covenant. I am renewing it. And that renewal is so thorough that everything ends, by the time this is made, everything ends just like it was done through the first time. So as we look at verse 3 and following, God does for Israel exactly what he did for them the first time. Verse 3, I made an ark of acacia wood, put in the two tablets, like the first stone tablets, And I went up, verse 4, he wrote on the tablets the same writing as before, and he even refers to it in the same way, the Ten Commandments, that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire, same way he labeled them in chapter 9. And then later on, the Lord gave them to me, verse 5, I turned and came down the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made. So he deposits them where they would have gone in the sacred precinct, we might say, which is where the first ones would have gone. And so this is a thorough and complete renewal. There is nothing missing from this covenant that was not included in the first one. Uh, Quite a remarkable second start for the people. Verses 6 and 7, you will see, at least in the ESV, it begins a a parenthesis that runs all the way through verse 9. Some of your translations might vary a little bit. Um, I'm going to say verses 6 and 7 are primarily the parenthetical statement, and verse 8 begins something different. So verses 6 and 7. The people of Israel journeyed from Beeroth ben Jaakan to Maserah, and Aaron died, and there he was buried. And his son Eliezer ministered as priest in his place. From there they journeyed to Gudgoda, and from Gudgoda to Jathbatha, a land with brooks of water. What's going on here? Uh, all I think this is, is there are two things happening here. Uh, first, Aaron had received special treatment as part of Moses' prayer. So if we go up to verses 18 and 19 of chapter 9. Moses says, I lay prostrate before the Lord, and uh, I prayed because of all the sin that you had committed, doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. Verse 19, for I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me, which is Moses prayed for all of the people. And the Lord responded favorably. But then verse 20, Moses singles out Aaron. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at that time. So just as though the people received treatment and Aaron separately in Moses' praying, so they received here in the Lord's response. The Lord's response to the people is full renewal of the covenant. The Lord's response to Aaron, verses 6 and 7, is a mixed bag. And the reason it's a mixed bag is because Aaron died quite some time later. It is, in some respects, a successful intercession, you might say. So much so that Aaron went from being almost destroyed to functioning as Israel's high priest. And a pretty good high priest he was on the whole as well. And so just as Moses gave Aaron special treatment in intercession, so he gives Aaron special treatment uh, moving on from here as well. But there's one more thing. Exodus connects Aaron's premature death, and by premature I don't mean he was young. I mean it was before they got into Canaan. Numbers, I should say, connects Aaron's premature death with a different rebellion. Moses says nothing of that rebellion, and here connects it to the golden calf. Moses uses Aaron as an illustration of the results of idolatry and an illustration of the Lord being true to his character. If we go back to Exodus 34, we can see the 
depth of God's wisdom in dealing with Aaron. So Exodus 34, beginning in verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, is that not true? Is that not Israel's own experience? And is that not what would provoke Moses to pray as he does? The Lord fronts that aspect of his character for good reason. Because he is primarily inclined to be that. But, who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There is a sense in which Aaron still had to pay for the sin of the golden calf. He died before they got to Canaan. And his rebellion at Horeb is a clearer and stronger illustration of Aaron's sin than his complicity in Moses striking the rock, which is ultimately uh, where he was barred from entering the land in numbers. This here is the greater sin. And so Moses focuses on his sin at Sinai and connects Aaron's death to that. So in light of the Lord's character and in light of Aaron's sin, who was pardoned from that sin but still had a due to pay as a result of it. We might say a natural consequence, as it were. Moses has this flash forward now in Deuteronomy 10, verses 6 and 7, simply to make that connection. Verse 7 may seem odd. From there, Israel journeyed on and goes to a place with brooks of water. All that to say, Aaron dies, life goes on, and uh, ends with a place uh, with flowing streams, because that's where they left uh, Sinai. Sinai had streams, and the Lord saw to the people's provision. I'll pause there very briefly. Thoughts or questions over that? Okay. I would end the parentheses at the end of verse 7, and I would start verse 8 differently because it begins the same way verse 1 does. At that time, which is simply referring to that span of time, primarily that sat between those two 40 days, but including uh, Moses' 40 days of intercession, at that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to stand before the Lord to minister to him and to bless his name to, uh, to this day. Bless in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his, inter- his inheritance, as the Lord God said to him. A lot going on here. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi. This separation is not a material separation. It is a separation of purpose. It's a division between something that is part of the whole and taken out of that whole and made something on its own. It is the language of something being made new, being separated out. That's appropriate because alongside this renewed covenant, there is now a renewed purpose. That purpose that this tribe of Levi was separated out for is given three purposes. Verse 8. That time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Levi is to bear the burden of the ark as the repository of God's covenant. Levites are to guard and to protect 
and to facilitate the word and worship of God and to safeguard it from the incursions of others. They are to keep it pure. The second thing they are to do is to stand before the Lord to minister to him. They are to minister to the Lord, and their frame of mind is to be that of servants of the covenant, both of the people and of the Lord. Now, obviously, God does not need people to give him anything. He says, I don't need your sacrifices. And the Levites, as priests, were involved in the sacrifice, uh, sacrifices. But what it means to minister to the Lord is simply to have the Lord's mission as their purpose in life. They serve the Lord and his kingdom. That's what they're about. Number three is to bless in the name of the Lord. As God's servants whose lives center on God's word, they have the authority to give and withhold blessing. But they, like the Lord, are to be inclined toward blessing in his name rather than cursing in his name. Now, if I were speaking to a group of pastors and elders, I would say that is your job among God's people. But I'm speaking to a congregation. And as a congregation, this is your job in the midst of the world. Second, uh, First Peter chapter 2. I sure hope the reference is right. First Peter chapter 2. Verses 9 to 12. This is Peter speaking to the elect exiles of the dispersion, referring to all, all Christians. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Like Deuteronomy, Moses is deep, uh, Peter is deeply concerned for the purity of this people. Right? I urge you, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That is fitting, given the holiness or the separateness of the people Peter is talking to. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So be separate. The Levites were separated out. They were chosen. They were to operate out of a different mindset altogether because they served an entirely different purpose. Considering Levi's role... They were guardians of the word and the worship of God. Do you consider that to be your job? Are you a guardian of the purity of the doctrine? Right? Paul in Colossians 1.28 will say, we, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Warning everyone. So it's when, when we say we guard the purity, it doesn't mean as though the word can actually be polluted, right? The word is what it is. It's unalterable and always will be. But there is still this form of protection that goes on. We are not to let the doctrines of the church be diluted, and we are to see to their clear and articulate uh, explanation 
In Matthew 6, 33, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. That is the servant mindset Christians are to have. Not only are we to be those who guard the purity of the church's doctrine and teaching, we are to do that with the mindset of a servant trusting our master who not only provides for us what we need, but also our master who gives us authority. So in Matthew 16, Jesus will say, I've given you the keys of the kingdom. What you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. He grants his people, not just the apostles, I don't think, but his disciples as representative of the whole church, he grants his people the authority to actually have significant impact. And based on God's word, we can say to someone, God will or will not forgive you, as we see their reaction. That's part of the confess your sins to one another. And as we do that, we hear our brothers and sisters say to us, but God said he will forgive you for this. Or we can say to someone who is not uh, meeting the conditions, the Lord said he will not forgive this sort of thing. If, if this is what you continue on in, you can expect nothing from the Lord. And we have the authority to say that sort of thing. As we, from a servant mind and heart, are the stewards of God's word. Now what's remarkable about Matthew 16 is its context. Matthew 16, verses 18 to 20, is where he actually grants that authority But the context of it is this. Verse 13, so there's Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, Now, I don't know if Peter was talking for the rest of the disciples or not, but the way the text would seem to indicate is none of the other disciples disagreed with him. It says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Knowing who Jesus is is a result of having some sort of personal connection with him. Out of that personal connection comes the authority. It's after this that Jesus says, Blessed are you, flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, and whatever you bind will have been bound, and whatever you loose will have been loosed. That authority comes from a personal connection. It's no different for the Levites. So back in Deuteronomy now, leaving Matthew behind briefly, same for the Levites. Chapter 10, verse 9. Therefore the Levite, therefore Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. All the other Israelites, the other twelve tribes, they all had opportunity to grow in their personal wealth and its pleasures. Levi didn't have that. Levi was given no land. If you were a Levite, you didn't own anything. Your tribe kind of had Um, cities, they had cities marked out here and there where you can live, so it's not as though you were condemned to poverty, but nothing was yours, and you didn't have an inheritance as a Levite to pass on to the next generation. The other 12 tribes had that. The 12 tribes had the inheritance of land and everything that came with it. Levi does not get that. Levi's income was tentative, based on the Lord's provision for all of the people, and then the people's uh, generosity on top of that. Levi's provision was quite tentative. They got the tithe. They were not condemned to poverty, but neither did they have opportunity for pleasure, indulging prosperity. The world grows in its wealth. We risk ours by our personal connection to Christ. But if we are tempted to feel bad for the Levites, just remember, 
the, Levi, the 12 tribes got land for their inheritance. What's Levi's inheritance? It's the Lord himself. No one should have a closer connection to the Lord than the Levites. But no one should be happier than the Levites. Which is better? To have the land or to have the Lord as your inheritance? And now as Christians, how do we normally approach that? We'll end on Psalm 84 this morning. Psalm 84, verses 8 to 12. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness, where, by the way, prosperity resides. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Part of that no good thing there in verse 11 might be being led to the slaughter like a lamb. But we'll know the one in the end who does bestow favor and honor and blessing. The Christian's mindset ought to be the same as Paul's. All things are rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. And Levi, set apart for the service, gives a great example for how the Christian is to operate, both in what we are supposed to do but also in simply who we are supposed to be, and that is those who are closest to the Lord. Nothing is worth more than that. We're out of time, so I'll be here for thoughts or questions if you